looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 31. And we, um, so two basic passages that we're looking at, marriage and divorce, and a rich young ruler. So the first part on marriage and divorce, part one. So it has been said that money, sex, and power are the three greatest temptations of our age in which we live, or indeed as long as man has always lived. In one way or another, these three things actually lie at the heart of what Jesus is teaching his disciples in this passage in Mark 10, uh, verses 1 through whatever it is for this section. As we've seen in the last few weeks, Jesus is on his journey toward Jerusalem. And quite literally, this is in the last month of his life on earth. And he has a lot to try and teach his disciples during this time. The Pharisees continue to bring to the table some great opportunities for teaching important truths to the disciples. And the two interactions we're looking at today is no exception. The first topic at hand is marriage and divorce. With the exception, with the, sorry, with the emphasis on divorce, a topic with which far too many of us are familiar. As I did some research, I was surprised to find that the national divorce rate has been decreasing in the last 20 years, going from 4 in 1,000 to 3 in 1,000. It's a difficult number to calculate because data is only collected by the Census Bureau in terms of how many people are married and how many people are divorced. It doesn't measure how many people got married and then divorced, so we don't really have a great handle on that. That being said, the flip side is that fewer people are also getting married. So choosing just to live with each other instead of signing an official document. I could bore you with a lot of statistics, which you can look up for yourself. But the most telling statistic I found was that divorces increased by almost 40% in the early 1970s when no-fault divorce was made legal. So with that little tidbit of information, we pick up our story. Jesus is on the road again, leaving Galilee and going into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, heading toward Jerusalem. As he goes, the crowds are following him, and as is his custom, he periodically stops to sit and teach them. And as usual, the Pharisees, dogging him at every turn, Ask him again a question to which they already know the answer. Trying to trap him in his words, they ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Did any of you ever stop to think about how odd it was that in the first century BC that the Pharisees are asking Jesus about divorce? Or is the topic so commonplace today that you didn't even blink? I have to confess. I was in the latter category. It didn't even dawn on me, I guess I hadn't read Deuteronomy often enough, that as far back as Moses, God had given rules about divorce. And as usual, Jesus returns their question with another question. What did Moses command, he asks, to which they reply, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So let's go back to Moses for a minute, to Deuteronomy 24, and read the backstory behind their answer. Starting at verse 1 through 4 in Deuteronomy 24. If a man, this is a very long, long run-on sentence, so bear with me. 
man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from the house, and after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and sends it away, sends her to her house, away from her house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now I know this is a rather long run-on sentence, but this law was given to Moses way back at the beginning, hundreds of years later, after the exile, after the return from exile during Nehemiah's time, men were now divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying the local pagan women instead because the law had long since been forgotten. Though the law permitted divorce, this was still a violation of the marriage covenant and an abomination before the Lord. The last words from the Lord in the Old Testament are heard from the prophet Malachi. And it's here where we get a foretaste of how Jesus will handle this situation. In Malachi, we see God, we see how God really feels about divorce. It's much more powerful read in context, but for the sake of time, I'll just give you one verse. Malachi 2, verse 16. Reading from the NIV, it says, The man who hates divorce, sorry, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Or as the New Living Testament says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. The Pharisees really did know the law, but as usual, they were trying to find ways around it, to change it, to make it more palatable to them, and make it fit with the current social morals of the day. And, just like today, there were those that were in the conservative camp and those that were in the liberal camp. The key dispute in this passage revolves around the meaning of finding something indecent about her. The word indecent has been translated from the word pornea, from which we get the word pornography. The conservatives, the Shammai group, would say that the pornea in this case is equivalent to sexual immorality or adultery in particular, and that would seriously limit the reason for divorce. The liberals, the Hillel group, believe that anything could constitute indecency, even something as simple as turning around and your, and your ankles being exposed from under your robe, or maybe speaking loudly or in some way showing disrespect to your husband. Notice that in both of these cases, the woman has no power or say in this discussion. It's only the man who has the ability to write the certificate of divorce and send his wife away. It's only the woman who's held responsible for infidelity and not the man. This still holds true in the Middle East today, especially in those countries that hold to the teachings of the Quran even to the point of mutilating a woman who is found committing adultery. No doubt, both groups were present as they brought this question to Jesus. 
And in what better place than in the vicinity in which John the Baptist had confronted Herod Antipas for marrying his brother's wife? And in so doing, John lost his life. If Jesus answers no to this question, their hope would be that he would face the same fate as John the Baptist. If he said the divorce was legal, then he would be accused of not keeping the law. Well, as usual, again, Jesus does not base his reactions on political correctness or morals of society of the day. But instead, he sets the pattern for us to follow by going back to the beginning, back to what the Bible says God intended for the original created order. And he quotes directly from Genesis 1, verse 27, and also from 5, 2. Paraphrasing, it says, God made them male and female, and the two lead their parents and become one flesh. They're not designed to be broken apart. The marriage between a man and a woman is a holy covenant designed by God in the garden when he saw that it was not good for man to be alone. They were to be fruitful and multiply and love each other and walk with God. But then came the fall. No doubt, the first argument between husband and wife occurred under that tree. Because with the fall, also came the curses from God. For man, it was cursing the work that he would toil at his, with his hands. For the woman, her pain and childbearing, and, quote, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. At first glance, that doesn't sound or look much like a curse, does it? But the intention behind the word desire, your husband, here is more like desire to control is the intent of the word, which totally makes more sense because what married woman has not tried to have control over her husband? Then, when you have the second phrase, but he will have control over you, this was literally the beginning of the war between the sexes, where the constant battle of who is going to be in control of the relationship has raged ever since. So God's provision for divorce is easier to understand in light of the fall because he knows how hard our hearts are. Even though it doesn't excuse our sin or negate the original intention of the relationship. It also makes the disciples' reaction in Matthew 19 where they say, well, we might as well remain single. It makes that more understandable, too, as they were probably on board with the liberal teaching of divorce and it didn't matter what the wife did and you could hand her a certificate of divorce. When we, when we take it upon ourselves to find any reason for divorce, such as what we now call no-fault divorce, we've lost touch with the holiness of God and with what he intended to be a relationship that lasts for a lifetime. With this background in mind, Jesus now speaks the final word about divorce while alone in the house with his disciples. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. Pretty clear, isn't it? This is the rule set forth for the church as the final word from God about divorce. If only it was that easy. Fortunately, for both parties, Jesus makes the one provision 
that of sexual immorality, which we find in Matthew 19, as the only reason for divorce, the only excuse to not, uh, to not stay married. But why is it so strict? Because trust in the relationship has been broken. That bond of one flesh, that union that has been blessed by God's Spirit, has been torn asunder. And a few are those that can come to the point of repentance and forgiveness and restoration of the marriage. Though I know that there are many that have succeeded in doing that. I must also mention here that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 16, also gives another valid reason for divorce, that of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. It's helpful to read that whole chapter also. Every situation is different, and these truths are often hard to hear and apply, and we need to pray for wisdom for our pastors and our elders as they counsel those marriages that are in trouble. Lastly, I want you to also see what else Jesus has done in this final teaching. Under this new covenant, he has elevated the position of women to a new place that is now on equal footing with, with the man. The man now is not just as the man now is just as responsible for his actions as the woman is. And they can both sue for divorce. But the key point here is that the marriage relationship is a picture ultimately of the relationship between Christ and the church, which is clearly laid out in Ephesians 5, 22-33, and in 1 Peter 3. And that relationship is not meant to be broken either. As the ESV notes summarize, Paul and Peter transformed the question of how husbands, fathers, and masters dominate to how they can imitate the love of Christ in their own lives by nurturing those under their care. Likewise, women turn from being passive objects in a social world that devalues them, and they become instead active partners Sorry. active partners with God in expressing Christian love before a world that is divided by gender, age, and economics. In this passage, then, we have touched on sex and power. And now let's see where money fits in. A little diversion here. Don't think that I'm not reading the right passage. But in Acts 16, we read this story of the Philippian jailer. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out into the light, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and, you and your household, and be saved. When I read our next story in, March, in Mark, I thought of this story when I read it. I thought of this story in Acts. It has a lot of similarities. But the outcomes of the two stories are, unfortunately, totally opposite. In this story found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
we learn the three characteristics which define the man who comes running up to Jesus. Luke tells us he's a ruler. Matthew tells us he was young. And all three, by the end of the story, tell us that he was extremely rich. Like the jailer in the Acts passage, this man comes running up to Jesus and he falls at his feet. And without much introduction, he blurts out, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The equivalent of, What must I do to be saved? Clearly, this man does not know who he has just run up to. But he does recognize that he's missing something in his life. Kneeling and calling him good teacher, Jesus returns his question with another question, Why do you call me good? I had to ask myself the question, Why does Jesus make the point of saying that no one is good except God alone? Is he trying to connect the fact that he is God to this guy? But apparently it's not the case. Jesus recognized that this man only had a superficial understanding of what good meant. Like, I had a good day today. Or, this is really good coffee. Or, maybe that's a really good idea. No, that's not what he meant. I mean, that's, that's kind of like the superficial understanding of good that this guy had. Good, in Jesus' mind, is defined by God's character, which is shown to us in the law. All of Israel had been commanded to keep the law. And as they tried to keep their uh, keep up their end of the covenant, they fell far short of God's expectations. But this man still thought that he was on the road to righteousness, having kept the law since his youth, but he was trying to earn his way to heaven. Hence his question, what must I do to earn eternal life? As Jesus questions him about keeping the law, you can just see the smile on his face as Jesus starts listing the commandments, things that you should not do. Yes, done that, done that, check, check, got that, I've done that, good. Surely all the wealth and connections could make this work. And with enthusiasm, he thinks he's passed that test. And Jesus looks at him and he loves him. He can tell that this guy's heart is really in the right place. He really wanted to be sure of where he stood with God. Have you ever felt that look of love and that from Jesus? In his great desire to set you free from the bondage of sin? Jesus Jesus looks at us and he loves us. But that love especially for Jesus, is and was not without sacrifice. He challenges the man to do the one thing that really defines who he is and what he worships. Jesus asks him to sell all that he has and give it to the poor and follow him. This challenge revealed that this man cared more about his wealth on earth than he cared about eternity with God. He had worked so hard at keeping the law, but he didn't see the one commandment he didn't keep, which was number one, have no other gods before me. His money was his God. As the man walks sadly away, Jesus uses him as another object lesson for his disciples. He says, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
the astonishment of the disciples at this comment reflected a widespread assumption that material wealth was actually an indication of God's pleasure. Whereas in contrast, if you're poor, it means God must not look on you very favorably, and therefore you must have a very small chance of inheriting eternal life. Or you're going to have to work a lot harder at keeping the law in order to get in. It's an easy conclusion to come to, isn't it? When you read the Old Testament curses and blessings and stories like Job and see how people's riches are often tied to their blessings in their lives. This is the wide open door that leads to what we call works righteousness. And Jesus slams that door shut when he says, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, salvation cannot be attained by any human effort, whether you're rich or poor. This idea that you can earn your way to heaven is probably the most destructive lie that has perpetrated the church by the devil. I remember years ago participating in an evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion. This was during the Jesus Revolution back in the late 70s. We went door to door with a list of questions to ask people to answer. An amazing amount of people were willing to open their doors and talk to us. We had two main questions. First, have you come to the place in your life where you know that if you died tonight, you would go to heaven? And then if they answered yes. And the second question would be, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? The overwhelming answer that we got revolved around what they had done or not done, a simple case of works righteousness in about 80% of the cases that they answered. So what would you say? As Peter tried to justify his own actions by calling attention to what he has done, by following Jesus, Jesus pulls him up short, and he says, Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But the many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So, who are the last? Who did the disciples think should not even enter the picture or even get a second glance from Jesus that we read in our passage this week? The little children. The picture of Jesus holding the little children in his lap and saying that we must receive the kingdom in the same way as these little children is what he wants to teach us. Like little kids, when they're presented with a beautiful gift to open, take it eagerly. They don't ask, what do I have to do before I can open this? They accept it with open arms because they know the love of the one who is handing it to them. We are not justified by what we say or do in order to enter the kingdom of God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And my prayer for you today is that you will not be like the rich young ruler who went away sad when he had the pearl of great price standing right in front of him. 
we are all bankrupt debtors before God. But Jesus has paid our debt so that we can enjoy the inheritance of eternal life that awaits us in the kingdom. Instead, we should be like the Philippian jailer who ran to Peter in fear and trembling, asking, what must I do to be saved? Like a little child running into the arms of the Lord Jesus.